Well, there's going to be an opportunity this morning uh, to be tempted by the word um, into an academic discourse about the nature of God in prayer. Prayer touches on a mysterious reality of God and, you know, how can we move an unchanging God, that sort of thing, and before you know it, your mind can be heading down this, this I'm going to call it a rabbit trail this morning. I'm not saying it's not worthwhile in its own setting. I'm saying um, when we are trying to understand and own how to be better at prayer, how to pray in a more righteous way, that is a rabbit trail. So um, given our effort and our goal on these weeks, um, the mysterious nature of, of what happens when prayer goes to the other side of the curtain, um, I'm going to call that the quantum physics of God. It's, it's the kind of stuff that's real, but it, our ability for our mind to grasp it is limited, and so it always feels stressed. And so we're going to live in the kind of the classical physics of God which is practical and everyday. And this is the science of God that I want you to appreciate as we talk about prayers. God is a father, and we are sons and daughters. That is the practical science of God. Meaning, the father wants to know his children, and the children should desire to know the father. And the number one way that we do that and draw close to the Lord is through prayer. I mean, there's a host of different ways, but through prayer is how we visit and interact and dialogue with the Lord. It's how we share our heart. It's how we listen to the Lord. It's how the Lord reveals himself to us. It's, it is the medium through which we, as his children, approach him. So we, as sons and daughters, we pray to the Lord because every father wants to know what his children are thinking of, what's important to them, what their, their perceived needs are, what their real needs are. That's the science of God that we'll be with this morning. So this morning, I want you to be a son or be a daughter of the Lord and observe our older brother Moses as he comes before the Lord. Like I said, we're in Numbers 14. I'm going to read uh, about 20 verses, 20, 21 verses. This is immediately after the spies have returned from the promised land. So they go to the mountain. For those of you who don't have, you're just now coming to the things of God and you don't really know the stories that well. Um, The Lord rescues them from Egypt, takes them to the mountain of God, Mount Sinai, or he goes and brings the covenant and the Ten Commandments. The people submit to the covenant and they make covenant with the Lord. They're now the people of God and then they begin to follow the, God, the Lord. They build the tabernacle, the fire and the cloud, lead them through the wilderness and bring them to the threshold of the promised land at which point they select a spy from each tribe. They send these 12 spies into the land. The, the spies return with this report that the land is in fact awesome. It is flowing with milk and honey. It's everything that the Lord said it was, but more. And 10 of the 12 spies report that um, there is milk and honey, but right now the giants are drinking the milk and eating the honey. That there's giants in the land and peoples in the land and walled cities and great gates, and that it would mean the, the utter doom of the Israelites to go into that land and try to claim it for themselves. 
And so the people say, well, we ain't going. And that's where we pick up here in the 14th chapter. It says, that night, all the people of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt or in the desert, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole assembly, gathered there, Joshua son of Nun and Caleb son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes. They were the two faithful spies. Tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, The land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into the land, the land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not be afraid of the people of the land because we will swallow them up. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. But the whole assembly talked about stoning them. Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. The Lord said to Moses, How long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the miraculous signs I have performed among them? I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them, but I will make you into a nation greater and stronger than they. Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear about it. By your power you brought these people up from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land about it. They have already heard that you, O Lord, are with these people, and that you, O Lord, have been seen face to face, that your cloud stays over them, and that you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. If you put these people to death all at one time, the nations who have heard this report about you will say, the Lord was not able to bring these people into the land he promised them on oath. So he slaughtered them in the desert. Now, may the Lord's strength be displayed, just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in love and and in forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of the father to the third and fourth generation. In accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people, just as you have pardoned them from this time from the time they left Egypt until now. The Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you asked. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of the men who saw my glory and the miraculous signs I performed in Egypt and in the desert, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their forefathers. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. We'll stop there. Now there's a lot going on here. I want to focus on the intercession. I hope you can see it, by the way, the intercession that has occurred here, that God has a position and an intention 
Moses intercedes, and God relents. It's intercessory prayer in its most colorful form. And some of you might look at this and say, uh, that Moses doesn't sound like a son there. You know, earlier I said, this is how we pray, like a father and a son. Well, you look at Moses and you might think, well, that doesn't really sound like a son. Moses is fairly forthright with the Lord. He, stands, he doesn't stand up against the Lord, but he's forthright with the Lord. And this is where I want to I I say, let's just think a little more loosely about father-children. You know, whenever we say uh, a child uh, or, or father-son, oftentimes, um, especially because maybe of our, the age of many of us, you're inclined to think of a child as a kid. But I'm still the son of my father. And I speak to my father differently now than I did when I was six or 10 or 15. Right? And there's a sense, if, if, if you can imagine the Lord being the father, imagine Moses being an el- the elder son or the, the old son. Imagine them working in the same business, the family business. They're a partner. They're partnering in this effort. The Lord turns to Moses and Moses turns to the Lord. The Lord shepherds Moses and Moses shepherds the Israelites. There's this, this closeness that's present with Moses. That He's not like a child. You know, when we come to the faith, oftentimes we come like a child. When we were a child, we thought like a child, we reasoned like a child. But we, as we grow in the Lord, we put our childish ways behind us and we begin to behave like an adult, but we are still a son and daughter of the Lord. And that's what you have here. You have, this is the dialogue between a grown son. And when I mean grown, I don't mean age-wise. I mean Moses has grown old in the Lord. In such a way that he can, he can turn to the Lord and say this. Just like Christ, who is the Son of God, can speak freely with the Lord like this. I think, rather than thinking as though Moses is standing up against the Lord, we might better think that this is an occasion where Moses can say this because he knows the Lord. And I I can't escape this. I think this will show up in in every passage that we read about prayer or any time that you see effective prayer, that effective prayer only comes through knowing God. Really knowing God. That we've all been part of the Lord help us win this game prayer. Even the secular world looks down on that and says, what is that? Those are prayers of children who have not grown in the Lord. But as we grow in the Lord and as we know the Lord, only then can we begin to understand when the Lord invites us in to make a bold request. This call to draw confidently to the throne of God is a a call that we only truly begin to know the longer and longer we're in the Lord. And some of you are thinking, well, I am no Moses and I know I'll never be a Moses. I'm not that old in the Lord. I, I really think... 
if the Lord is a good father, a good father is looking for a child who is growing. A good father, a good parent is looking for a son or a daughter who's trying to draw close, trying to grow old, trying to grow up in the Lord. And that's what I think the Lord is looking for. That is the key ingredient to prayer. Stop worrying about the words you say. The words are almost irrelevant. It is the, kind of the age of the spirit you're bringing God. Do you know the Lord? And I'm, I'm challenging you with that now because in good times, we contend not to take this idea as seriously and then we show up in bad times and it can be months and months and months before we can find the peace of God because we don't really know him. It's just hard to pray well at a distance. And he wants us to draw closer. And I, so I want to, that's the first thing. I want us to look at a second thing here. And this is in verse 20. So Moses makes his case. And the Lord replies, I have forgiven them as you asked. The Lord changed his position. A very similar occasion, almost almost perfectly parallel to this account in Numbers 14, happens in Exodus 32, when Moses is up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments, and the Israelite community makes the golden calf and begins to bow down and worship it. In Exodus 32, you know what the Lord says to Moses? He says, Moses, I'll destroy these people, and I'll make a new nation with you. Same offer as happens right here. And you know what Moses does? Moses petitions the Lord. Just like he does here. You know what the Lord does? It says in Exodus 32, and the Lord relented. In some translations it says, and the Lord changed his mind and did not destroy the Israelite community. We're here at this point where the Lord expresses his intention, Moses intercedes, and the Lord changes his, his intention. His conclusion is different than his initial intention. That's what we see here. And when we think about this, the reality is, this is the reality, is that godly, righteous prayer changes the intention of the Lord. Now, some of you are going to want to do the quantum science of God here. I'm saying you need to, that, is a, that is a rabbit trail. You just set it aside and just know that the word calls us to pray and promises us that prayer can be effective. The prayers of a righteous man are effective, the word says. The word tells us to pray without ceasing. The word shows us time and time again of people praying and God doing something. The word shows that Christ himself prays to the Lord. We change the mind of the Lord through prayer. Not in a way, not in a way as though we're offering him new information. It is not as though Moses brings this stuff to the Lord and the Lord goes, oh, good point, Moses. That's not the kind of changing of the mind. We're not contributing information to God in order that he would change his mind. It isn't as though the Lord goes, oh, I didn't really consider that. Let me think about that and Weigh the pros and cons, and I'll get back to you. That's not the way that we change the mind of God. What essentially is happening, and it happens in life, is the Lord presents a situation to us, 
like he does to Moses, expresses his intentions as a way of inviting us in, giving us permission to change things. Why would the Lord go to Moses if Moses didn't have a say here? It's as though, you'll find it in two weeks, we're going to talk about Abraham, when the Lord, the three visitors, the three angels visit Abraham, and they're walking along the way, and one of them, they say, should we tell Abraham what we're going to do down in Sodom and Gomorrah? Let's tell him. And then enters in this invitation for Abraham to intercede on behalf of the city. That's what's happening here is the Lord, through what we see in life, through the way he calls us in our heart to different things, the Lord invites us in to situations so that we might intercede, so that the conclusion that might come out will have been a cooperation between his intention and our prayers. And there are times, there are times when the Lord says no level of, no level of intervention by man can affect this. In fact, there's a point here. You can tell the difference between the beginning and the end on God here. In the beginning, he says uh, to, 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 to Moses, how long will I, will I deal with these people? I will strike them down, and I will make you into a great nation. That's what he says in verse 12. Listen to the difference at the end of the intercession. Okay, in verse 22 and 23, or verse 21, Nevertheless, as surely as I live, as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of the men who saw my glory and the miraculous signs I performed in Egypt, and it goes on and on and on. He's, he's going to send them on a 40-year detour, and he's going to kill off the older generation and bring in the younger generation. Do you see how that sounds different? But in the beginning, it's, here's... Don't get quantum on this, but it's, here's what I'm thinking. What do you think, Moses? What do you think, son and daughter of the Most High God? How will you respond? And then God's people respond, and then he says, this is what I'm going to do. And there's times that we have permission to intervene, and there's times that God doesn't give us permission to intervene. When David sins with Bathsheba, and the prophet Nathan encounters them and, and, and calls David out, he says, you, what you have done has been a stench, a stench of the, put, made the Lord a stench to the enemies. You've made God look bad, is what Nathan says. You've made God look like he's not a holy, moral God. You've made the nation of Israel look like it's not holy. And the Lord says, because of that, you're going to lose the firstborn son of Bathsheba. And the son gets sick, and the whole time the son is sick, what does David do? He fasts, he prays, he's in sackcloth and ashes, he does not eat, he goes without, he prays, and he prays, and he prays, and he prays, and he prays. He intercedes, he intercedes, and he intercedes, and what happens? Does the child live? Does the child get healed? No, the child dies. Because God did not give permission There's, a, there's times when God's will is permissive. He invites us in to make intercession. And this is, this is, I think, an important part in this, is we should note that God's initial position is a godly position. So when the Lord says to Moses, I'm going to destroy the Israelite community, and I'm going to build a new nation through you. 
we need to recognize that is a godly and good position. Moses doesn't say, God, you can't do that because that's cruel and unusual punishment. He doesn't say that. Moses doesn't say, well, God, you can't do that because that's violent. And it's, ah, it's just ungodly. That's not at all the case that Moses makes because God's initial position is a godly position. And for everything, everything that we encounter in this life, when we're, when we're called to pray for something, whether it's the sick or the dying or a difficult marriage or a lost job, we need to remind ourselves that God is not currently in an ungodly position on the issue. God is in, God is always being godly. You may, it may not, you may not like what you see, but God's initial position is never an ungodly position. He doesn't start in a position of ungodliness and hope that we pray him to be God. It isn't that he's not at work, that he took the week off. The position he sees, whether it's a sick child or a failing marriage or a struggling job or whatever it is, God is currently active in that situation for his glory and is being godly. And very often, we don't appreciate that when we come into prayer and the disposition of ourselves as we get on our knees is wrong from the start. It is because of the sin of this earth and the sin of people that everything that we see that's wrong is wrong. God is just and godly. And that should be how we start our prayer. This notion, we never will, it'll be so difficult to navigate to the right answer with the Lord if we start at the wrong place. Moses moves God, but God is never moved from an ungodly position. This should be our posture as we enter into intercession. Now, I want you to look at one other thing. One last thing here. And that is the argument that Moses makes. When you hear Moses say this, do you hear Moses say... Oh, Lord, don't destroy the people because Fred is my best friend. Does he say that? Does he say, Lord, my wife is there? What about the children? Does he say, well, Lord, all of the wealth, it's going to be very inconvenient. We're going to just leave all of this wealth here and we're going to go. Do you you notice the the intercession of Moses has God in mind. When Moses intercedes, it's hard to even say he's interceding on behalf of the people. When Moses intercedes, he's almost interceding on God's behalf. Moses goes to the Lord in prayer and says, Lord, your name will be confused among the other nations. He brings God's own reputation to him and lays it down and says, Lord, I don't understand how the other nations will be able to make sense out of this. And the second thing he does is he brings God's own nature To him. He says, Lord, show yourself powerful because I know you're just, but I know you are merciful. And a truly, a powerful God is just, but a most powerful God is just and merciful. That's what he says there. Look, 17, now may the Lord's strength be displayed just as you as declared. It's as though Moses is saying, for you to strike the Israelite community down is a strong thing, but a most strong thing would be for you to display your great strength in being merciful and forgiving and compassionate and kind. 
And so what Moses does is Moses brings to the Lord the Lord's kingdom and his name. It's like the Lord's prayer. When Jesus teaches us how to pray, does he start off with the things that we want? No. The Lord begins teaching us how to pray with, hallowed be thy name. This is reputation. Your kingdom come, your will be done. When you intercede, do you intercede for people with God's best on your mind? Or when someone's sick, do you just pray they get better? What if the Lord has a great noble purpose in that person being sick? Wouldn't your prayer be different if you knew that? Oswald Chambers says it this way in My Utmost for His Highest. He says, the danger, speaking of intercession, he says, the danger is that, in this, is that we begin to intercede in sympathy with those whom God has gradually lifting up to a totally different level in direct answer to our prayers. He calls sympathy a danger. He says this, whenever we step back from our close identification with God's interest and concern for others and step into having emotional sympathy with them, the vital connection with God is gone. This is a hard teaching. You hear this? We have to put our sympathy concern for them in the way, and this is a, de- a deliberate rebuke to the Lord. In other words, what, it, what he's saying is, is when our sympathy for their discomfort is what's driving us to prayer, we will never pray well. Because we're not praying for their best, we're simply praying for their comfort. But when God's glory, when, when God is first in our mind, then we enter into prayer differently. We approach the Lord differently. If our disposition is that he's never in an ungodly position, uh, disposition, and we come to the Lord and we approach him in prayer, we can begin to pray like, more like this. Lord, we don't know what's happening to the Spirit. Remember, words don't matter. It's your spirit. So you can't bamboozle the Lord. You cannot say, Lord, help the ravens beat the Broncos like I did. And then just staple onto it for the glory of your kingdom. Right? You cannot manipulate the Lord with this kind of language. He knows. But when in our heart the glory of God's kingdom is first, then we can come in and pray a much better prayer. We can get towards the heart of what makes God smile in prayer. Lord, this person is ill but they know you and their doctors don't. Glorify yourself. How is that not a great prayer? Lord, this marriage is struggling, but you were present and consecrated it. Show yourself mighty. There are times when I even find myself praying over marriages. Lord, you were there in the day, Lord, Your reputation is at stake. Show yourself so that all those around would say, the Lord, he has done it. The Lord, he has done it. The Lord should be the first. 
We see so much illness and so much brokenness, and so often we get right to the right place of praying, and it's sympathy. It's sympathy that just ah oh, bends the prayer the wrong way. Allow our love for people and our love for God to unite in prayer. We see this, by the way, with Christ. Mark, the gospel of Mark, when they tear open the ceiling and lower down the cripple and they put the cripple there, does Jesus Christ look at the cripple and shed a tear and say, ah, who did this to you? Look at his bed sores. By the power invested in me, stand up and take up your mat and walk. Is that the mind of Christ at that instance? No. Christ uses it for his glory. He looks at the man and he says, you tell me which is greater, to forgive sins, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say to this man, stand up, take up your mat, and we'll go home. But I tell you so that you might know that the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins, I say to him, stand up, take up your mat, and go. It's for his glory. There's another occasion in John chapter 9, there's a blind man. And the Pharisees, they're walking by and they say to Christ, who sinned, this blind man or his parents? And Christ says, neither of them sinned. There was no sin there. He says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. That is hard. But as a true growing son and daughter of Christ, you're being called to pray with that in mind. When Lazarus is dead, they come to him and they say, Christ, if you were, you've come quicker You could have saved him. And Jesus actually says, well, it's good I delayed so that you can see. And then he sits there in his prayer. When he sits pronouncing over the tomb, this is what he says to the Lord. He says that he doesn't need to pray this prayer out loud, but he says, for the benefit of the people standing here, that they might believe that you have sent me. I say to you, Lazarus, come out. It's for the Lord's glory. For there to be holy intercession. Our intercession is not simply to heal people or give them jobs or calm their marriage. Our intercession is so that the name of God would be holy and that more people on this earth would sing Hosanna. That's why we intercede, it's for the glory of God. I'll give you one last, I'll end with a question. Imagine that instead of Peter, James, and John, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took you and a few other friends to the Garden of Gethsemane. Imagine that on his last night, he came to you and looked you in the eye and said, pray for me, for I am heavy in spirit. And he went off in the garden to pray, and you knelt down to pray. What would you pray? Would you pray, Lord, don't let Jesus be taken? Oh, Lord, don't let him be hurt. Or would your prayer be motivated out of sympathy? Or would your prayer be, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come. Which is a prayer he answered. Sometimes 
the intercessory prayer that is most right is most difficult to offer. Sometimes we have to pray things. We are brought to pray things that the beneficiary of does not want to hear. Because they want sympathy. It's my hope and prayer that as we try to grow in prayer, not simply learn about prayer, but grow in prayer, we would start by saying, God allows us to move him. He invites us to move him. And the Lord wants us to move him from a godly position to a godly position. Within his godly character, the Lord is giving us permission at times to move him. And God allows us to move him so that his glory can be shown and his love can be displayed to mankind. I pray we remember that. I'm going to bow us in prayer, and I'm going to invite the praise team up. Uh, and what I ask, I'm going to ask you to do something while we sing. I just want, want you to reflect with the Lord about yourself. How do you customarily come to him? Are you the kind of person that doesn't pray very much? Imagine what that means if he's a father and you're a child. Are you, are you a, the kid who goes, Whatever. You know, I'll be in my room. What does it mean if you don't come to the Lord in prayer? I, I want to ask that. Or if you come to prayer, are, uh, do your prayers never quite get past? I mean, when you're praying on behalf of others, do they never quite get past? Like, Lord, I see the sickness, heal the sickness. Lord, I see the frustration, bless the frustration. Lord, I see the poverty, bless the poverty. Lord, I see the brokenness, bless the brokenness. Does, does the prayer ever get past that? Simply just telling the Lord what you see and hoping that he fixes it. I want to challenge you. What will happen, by the way, is, is when you pray through that, the Lord will very often call you into something. That's, I think, why we stop. Is fear of being caught up with the Lord. Let me pray. Lord, it's not words. It's not the words. Um, it's the Spirit, Lord, so... We just submit our spirit that you see. Father, you see our spirit better than we see it. And all that's wrong with it, Lord, we, we are not Moses, but we are not unlike Moses, Lord. You have given us permission to approach your throne with confidence. And so we say that this morning. We say that you have given us the great blessing of audience with you. And oh, Lord, I pray we would not waste that. Not for ourselves and not for others, Lord. I think in this world there are things that ought to break our hearts and ought to send us to your throne. Lord, help us to have eyes to see the things that you see so that we come to you with the thoughts that you have and we pray with the character and nature of your character and nature, Lord, so that you might be moved to action. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.